listeners. Welcome back to the Business of Wellness. I am thrilled to be back here with you all today. And I am so sorry that it has taken me this long to get this episode out. I have a fantastic interview in store for you today that you are not going to want to miss. I am going to say before I even introduce today's guest that I had some challenges both with the canines in my life and the um, the microphone that I was using to record this podcast. So the sound is not my favorite. It's not the top quality. Hope that you will bear with me. I appreciate your compassion and understanding. And next week, next podcast episode, I promise we will be back to top quality. But for now, let me introduce our guest today. She is Daniela Elizari. Daniela is a registered dietitian. And she is also a well-being expert, a workplace well-being expert, a consultant, and the director of well-being at Columbia University's Office of Work Life. We get into all things related to corporate wellness, to corporate well-being programs, what are best practices, what Daniela is seeing in terms of trends in her field and industry, what are some watchouts, what are some things that are um, not recommended in her scope of practice, and what she wants other people to know about this field, about workplace well-being, and the programs that are available to you and the programs that she has been working to put in place. She has a lot of fantastic, great insights um, that are shared throughout this episode, so definitely stick around to the end, especially because we get into some key insights for investors. As always, please feel free to follow me at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and at Jacqueline London on TikTok. The Business of Wellness podcast also has an Instagram account. Follow the Business of Wellness on underscore pod and reach out, say hi, leave a comment on any of the recent posts, recent videos. I can't wait to hear from you. You can also feel free to reach me at Jacqueline London RD via direct message on any social platform. All right, without further ado, let's hear from Daniela Elizari. We have many topics to cover on the topic of corporate wellness, but we need to start with you. Let's start with you. Tell us about you. Tell us about your current role and everything else that we need to know, including your astrological sign. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Well, as you know, first of all, I'm a dietitian, just like you. Um, And I got interested in this work, working with you in a hospital and also doing our side hustles on the after hours. Never a dull moment, always side hustling. Never a dull moment. So, you know, while working in this burnt out, exhausted state, but also in a field that I was really passionate about, I became interested in this topic of workplace wellness, workplace well-being, which is what we're kind of calling it now these days. Um, yeah. And that what has, what has, was, what has brought me here where I'm working now at Columbia as the director of well-being in Columbia's office of work life. That was the question, right? Is my role. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, so Columbia's office of work life. So what is, so what does that mean? Where is that housed exactly? And what is that like, what is, what is that like as a part of a university system? That's a really good question. So our office, exists to make sure that faculty and staff have meaningful Mm. lives both at work and outside of work too. So part of that, or a big part of that is well-being, right? Because you want to be well at work and you want to be well at home Mm -hmm. and we want to integrate those two factors. So our office serves the whole faculty and staff community and we serve faculty and staff at Columbia as what you would think of as the school, like the academic campus, Mm -hmm. the medical center, and then other satellite offices um, so if you're getting a paycheck from Columbia, our office is here to support you. It's a tall ask. Well, that's huge. That's a big job, Dee. That is a huge job. Like it's that's big. Like- and, you know, I 
there's a lot of people I work with and a lot of support that we have. Um, but it is, the work has been amazing and, and gratifying. And, you know, I've come a long way of understanding what wellness or well-being means when we worked at a hospital many years ago, when we were thinking about employee wellness programs, and we were really focused on like weight loss programming or doing like a weight loss class in the basement of a hospital. And, you know, luckily that has evolved to so much more. Okay. This is my big question because I think this is such a good point that you raise, which is that so much about everything to do with workplace well-being in general, like, and certainly in the past was, and even not, it's not even that long ago that we were working in an environment where there was a workplace weight loss program. What do you think, like, where did this shift come from? How did we get here? How did that happen? And what does it look like now for you in what you do then versus now? Sure. I mean, I would say even before the pandemic, we were much more focused on the physical aspects of well-being. I think, you know, the pandemic definitely shifted some of that. And there's a mental health crisis in the U.S. So I think that has brought the attention to different topics beyond mental and emotional well-being, but like happiness and resilience and finding joy in life and all these other topics um, that will make us more well, especially in our work where a lot of people are working under terrible conditions, too many hours a day, back to back to back meetings, not getting up, not eating, not having a moment to breathe. So there's just been so much buildup. And I think the pandemic really highlighted that um, for those of us in the industry and just people in general, even if you go on social media, you'll see that people aren't necessarily talking about weight management. Not that that's a bad thing. We do weight management programming. Um, but there are many other aspects of our well-being that are important. And, you know, we see well-being as a construct of many different dimensions. So it's not just physical, it's social, it's mental, emotional, financial, cultural, community, like even your how you interact with your environment. These all have impacts on our, our well-being. And as we evolve as human beings, you know, some areas of well-being might be more prevalent to us than others, you know, like during the pandemic, a lot of us felt very isolated. And we realized how important it is to have social interactions and have community and to get outside and get sunlight. So I think that was kind of a little bit of an experiment that we all lived through and have persevered together. How do you see the role of workplace wellness as far as um, getting more people interested in joining the staff? Or is it something that you think like this is this is something that we need and we need it because um, because we know that coming out of the pandemic, it's been particularly challenging. Like where do you, where what's your take on that? So, like, I would say like 10 years ago, you know, there was a lot of conversations of like, you know, every dollar you spend on well-being, like you'll get one dollar back. But that's not really the conversation anymore. The conversation now has shifted that, you know, it is the right thing to do. So hopefully that is enough for employers. But if you're not doing anything around well-being, you're just not relevant and people aren't going to want to work for you. You won't be able to get the right talent even a little bit through the door. And even if you do get them through the door, they're not staying. So in terms of employee retention, what you're doing around well-being is huge because I think we've all learned that we don't want our lie our work to just be our lives. We don't want that like nine to five grind or nine to nine grind if you work in finance or some of these really intense industries. People want to have lives. They want to have time for themselves during the day. Um, you know, as a newish parent, I've not realized and seen the importance of having a, a little bit of time and, and flexibility throughout the day to be able to spend time with my daughter, not have 
our caretaker do everything for her. You know, as your life evolves or life evolves or changes, I think we all can notice the benefits of well-being practices, but also just creating an environment that supports your overall well-being as a whole person. I feel like I sound really preachy, but that's, you know, that's really it. (laughs) That's so well said said because it's like real life and it's also your experience. I mean, I, I like, I think the idea of wellness, quote unquote, or, or the concept of health, even in general is, is we often just get something major. So wrong about it, which is that it's dynamic. Like it's not meant to be some static place. So if it's dynamic, then it has to move it has to be a realistic understanding of what better health and well-being actually looks like for your life at this stage and at this point in time. And we we had our kind of macro global shift through the pandemic. And now, you know, you're you're adding more color to that by saying, yeah, we had a pandemic. And also, personally, I've experienced what it's like to, to have a transition, like a life stage trans- transition. And I need things that actually match my personal lifestyle. It makes you that much more of an expert to be able to speak to this and help other people with it. So, okay, here's what I want to know on that on that note, which is a, like, give us a day in the life. Like, what's your day to day look like? What are you? How are you spending your time in developing any type of program? Or are you developing programs? Are you developing like coursework? Yeah. Are you working one on one with patients? What's it What's it look like? So there's no one-on-one necessarily. Um, but I do oversee a well-being program that focuses on all those different areas that I spoke about. And, you know, we have amazing people that I work with in the university and work on my team that we develop a lot of the programs in-house and then we'll bring other contractors in that we can work with. So um, we've developed, a, for example, like a yoga program over the years. And then uh, with the pandemic, we brought that to life by making it a virtual program. And now that's evolved into now we're trying different things like functional fitness classes online and uh, we're starting a barless bar, AKA it's going to be like a Pilates, a virtual Pilates class. So a lot of our time is spent researching these programs, talking to our Ivy peers. Um, so like well-being people at other institutions to find out what they're doing, what's working, what's not working. We talk to our internal partners. Like we partner a lot with our fitness center at Columbia Um we spend a lot of time looking for new people to join us and help provide programming. So we've worked a lot with different types of meditation instructors. Um, and then the people on my staff, you know, one of them's an ergonomist, the other one has a background in public health. And I myself as a dietitian, I don't necessarily do the programming, but, you know, we are bringing all these pieces together to figure out how we can best serve our institution. And there's a lot of like pulling together the data and collecting pre and post data to see if our programs are impactful and are people changing their behaviors as a result of them. Spoiler alert, a lot of them are. We do see that people who are participating in our programs are spending more time meditating or longer times meditating or finding time to be physically active throughout the day, not just because they're engaging in our programs, but we're also sending them supportive communications like we're sending them videos of things that they could do in five to 10 minutes or, or tips on how to build these tips and lifestyle uh, practices into their day-to-day life. What's a success benchmark for you guys? Like what's a KPI when you have a new program or initiative that you're starting? Like what, give us like a, an example, like maybe a recent one. Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, we do, we've been doing a lot in the meditation space, first of all, because there's a lot of data to support 
the benefits of meditation and relaxation on your mental and emotional well-being. So we typically ask before and after programs, like how much time do you spend meditating every day? And then we give them a few options. And then how often throughout the week are you meditating? Um, and then we'll ask them again after the program. So if we see that shift, if we're seeing a statistical significant shift from pre to post, and we have people to analyze that data for us, then we know that our programs are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And sometimes we find out that, you know, maybe they're almost shifting behaviors, but what there are other aspects that are sh shown to be beneficial. Like people are saying that these programs are giving them a sense of community. We're, we're comparing that pre and post data, but we're also just asking for general comments and feedback. And a lot of times we hear that people see this to be a positive program because it makes them feel like they're part of a community and they can be around other people or get a break from the day or have time to relax and stay away from work. So, you know, we have what we're looking for and then sometimes we're surprised in the results and we'll see something that is beneficial, but we weren't necessarily expecting either. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Tell us about that one. Like what surprised you about some, um, about a new programming initiative or partner? So, well, exactly what I just said is that, you know, we were hoping one of our programs would help people meditate more, but instead yeah. they were kind of just joining because they wanted to be around other people. Something else that has happened that it's so interesting. Know, we're not even we're not even seeing in the data, so it's hard to quantify it. We have a smaller yeah. campus near like 125th Street, and we had a walking program there for many years. Um, but what we saw happen was that when people weren't showing up for the walks necessarily at one o'clock, we'd see them later on. They would just start their own walks at like 115 or 130, um, or like two o'clock they would go out for the walk and wave good wave hello or goodbye um, to the walkers who were wrapping up and. You know, they were like, oh, I'm doing my own walk today. So it was these programs have, are kind of creating um, these changes in culture and these changes of practice and making the community and the faculty and staff population know that it's OK to step outside. Um, and, you know, if you're not doing it with the rest of the group, you could do it on your own time. So that is something else that's been really surprising, not necessarily in the data, but something that we're physically seeing when we're deploying these yeah. types of programs. What an understated like. Perfect. I mean, first of all, I would totally be in the group that was like, we start at 120. We can't, we're trying to make it. Like I would have to tell myself, I'd be like, I'm going to make it there by one. And then it would be like, okay, but we start at, we start at 120. So, uh, who's with me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the whole finance team on that campus, they would, they would head out at 115 and we'd, we'd see them on the way. So, you know, it wasn't even one person. We'd see like groups from departments, specific departments coming out after their meeting ended or after they had lunch together. So it would just create this like Tuesday, Thursday rush of like walkers, <laughs> um, even if they weren't necessarily showing up for the program. That's amazing. It's also such a, a hallmark to me about like what is currently happening in the world, right? Like you, the program was designed to cultivate a meditation practice among people who took advantage of it. But what people were really looking for was like a community experience. And, and it almost makes you like the fact that you have the flexibility as, as a, as a sort of like well-being entity within the university to be like, Hey, like we're seeing this and this is hugely positive too. It makes you think like, okay, so what are other ways that we could actualize more programs or more um, future initiatives that, that really, that just aim to cultivate community? And like, would people still be interested in that in the future? My guess would be yes, but I, 
I feel like the idea of having these things where you get to learn almost as you go from what people's reactions or behaviors become as a result of the implementation of your department is like, that's the coolest thing. Like then you can just kind of like adjust as you go, right? That's exactly what it is. And that's why we're constantly collecting data or putting together focus groups or just trying to have conversations with people just to like have a pulse on the university and understand what people within the employee population want and what they need. And that has shifted so much in the eight years I've been there, you know, there was like, people were, people are definitely still interested in nutrition. I think when I was brought on, they, they wanted to bring me on because I was a dietitian, but now what we're being asked for is even more is to build community and to build programs around meditation and relaxation and mental and emotional well-being. And, you know, people still want nutrition and they want the weight management, but that is really what the focus is now. And the community so, part, you know, sometimes it just ends up happening. And then other times we're trying to build a, a program around community and then like nobody shows up. So it's like right. really <laughs> funny how that well, happens. Um, yes. No, I feel like that's the, the biggest learning of all. Like, I feel like that's like so almost like the take home to me. Is it like sometimes when you try to force something to happen, it's like the perfect example of it. It's like you try to force something to happen and... <laughs> It doesn't happen. And then you're like, we're going to do a meditation program. And everyone's like, you're going to do a meditation program. We're going to get lunch and be friends. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's hard to say, just throw things at the wall and see if they stick. You, you know, you want to have a strategy or reasoning behind the things that you're doing. But what you find in the data and what you find in the feedback that you're receiving will kind of blow you away sometimes in that way. So what's your time split between and how much time are you doing in person versus virtual? So I go into the office like two days a week. Uh, mm. So I mostly work remote, but even when I'm in the office, so much of the work is still being done remotely because a lot of the time spent right now is we get called on by the departments and they're looking for programs or presentations or ways for us to support them. So, you know, so much of the work is still being done remotely. Um, you know, we are I'm still going into the office so I can see my colleagues that I work with. And, you know, it's good to build that, that bond with your internal office and team. Um, but even when I'm in the office, still so much of the work is being done remotely because remember, we're like a huge university and it's just such a time suck to be running, you know, from campus yeah. to campus, from office to office. Um, and for program participants, it's the same thing. A lot of them prefer, you know, going on Zoom versus, um, coming in person, even if we do like a nice catered event, we had like five people show up. So, um, you know, we're trying things out. Uh, we're trying right. to be mindful of our resources, but right now it seems like most people want to connect on Zoom, even though in surveys they're asking us for community and to be part of something on campus. It's yeah. that's like a challenge, and we're not we're not necessarily alone in that. We hear that from other Ivy League universities who are doing the same work. Um, yeah that they're, people are telling them they want community, they want to engage with other people, and then they're just not showing up. So that continues to remain an unknown or a challenge or something that we continue to work on. It makes me think that like what people are really looking for is either the right quote unquote reason to, to show up as in the thing that like really speaks to them, which is almost like hard to even mine the data for because you you'd have to it's like probably something really personal right like to something to that or yeah. it's just like right time right thing right 
So like for me, and you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people is when I'm going into the office, I'm going to do the things I need to do on site or meet with the people I need to meet with on site. I'm not going to take an exercise class. I'm doing that when I'm working remotely and I can go downstairs, go on the Peloton in my building for 20, 30 minutes, come up and shower and be done within 40 minutes. You know, I'm not looking to like lug my things into the office for something like that. So it seems like even though people are saying that they want it, they're not necessarily showing up for the things that yeah. they want. You know, when they're coming into the office, they're getting the work done and leaving. And I, I have a feeling that'll continue to change since, I mean, not just Columbia, but offices everywhere are slowly asking people. I mean, people are back in the office, but they're slowly being asked to come in more and more. And once you have more of that downtime, then maybe they'll be more interested in participating in different kinds of programming on site. So we'll see. Totally. I mean, it just like I was just talking to a friend this morning who who um, who was saying to me that she was like, can you believe that that it was like just two years ago that I was here every day? So she lives in New Jersey. So so like the thought of that to me, it really is like it's a, such a jarring thought, right? Like is that she would take one hour in the beginning of the day and one hour at the end of the day. <laughs> and now we think of that as like, oh, my God, what a waste of time. Right. Like it's like almost like it is a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, maybe twice a week, twice a week sounds okay, but every day that's right. Right. Go find a new job. (laughs) Go find a new job. Right. Exactly. It's not worth your time. It's such a crazy thought because I feel like, you know, in some ways I think, I mean, I, I really think about it a lot, especially now, like working for myself is like, I'm, I'm always working from home unless I'm working on something that takes me outside of my home, obviously. But like, the commute is, is in some way something I miss a lot. Like, I, and granted, having two dogs is a little bit like commuting every morning. Because, <laughs> you Well, know, you have to get, get out, out of the house, so that's good. Right, <laughs> right. It, like, forces you to get outside. But at the same time, like, there is this um, built-in boundary between your work life and your home life when you have a commute, even if you're commuting. And I, I want to, I can't remember what brand it was that that came out with this sort of I don't know if it was like a, if it was Amazon related, whatever it was, it was like some sort of commercial that was speaking to people during lockdown or like toward the end of lockdown, like something where they had some time to like actually do some (laughs) creative around the topic, which was like (laughs) a commute, like a commute to home. So like you would go out in the morning and they'd show someone like getting ready for their workday and then coming back in their own home. Like audible, I, I don't know who, I think it was audible actually, but it was really creative and interesting to me because I thought like, yeah, this is exactly what we're currently missing. Like there's a lot of that time that we would use for either wellness, quote unquote, like, so to speak related things, like things that we would take care of ourselves, or they would be things that actually just got us properly moving, like in some capacity. So like that, there's like the, the benefit of what you said before of like being able to, to go to your Peloton in your building on your time and decide when you want to do it. And then on the other hand, you're like, God, we're really missing out on this opportunity that we once had to do self-care. That I think, you know, hybrid is probably the answer and let people decide what's best for them. I mean, within each organization. When you've introduced yourself somewhere, anywhere, and you're like, I work in corporate well-being for Columbia, like what is something, what's an assumption that people make that's just totally wildly inaccurate? So I think, I mean, when you're talking about workplace well-being and, and, and starting to incorporate workplace well-being into your organization, I think the number one thing that you hear is that like, 
we don't have a budget for that and implementing more well-being is so expensive but i mean so many things are free like to be compassionate and empathetic within your organization i mean just like asking your employees or asking your colleagues how are they doing like encourage them to share about what's going on in their their day to day so you can better understand what's going on and you can help them perform better and thrive in their jobs and thrive in what they're doing at home so i mean there's so many things you can do for free. Um, another thing that you can do is like end a meeting 10, 15 minutes early, tell your employees, go use the rest of that time for your personal care, your personal wellness, go, go for a walk, go out and get a cup of coffee or tea, go sit in the sun for five minutes. Um, just giving people the luxury of a little bit of time or cushion throughout the day is a huge benefit that you can give people. Um, and that doesn't cost any money at all. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, improving the communication within your organization. Um, you know, instead of sending meeting, uh, it, sorry, instead of sending emails late at night, maybe you schedule them for the next day. Just being a little bit more mindful of what you're communicating or how you're communicating it. If you're getting another way is if you're sending emails late at night, just write this is for tomorrow. Don't worry about it right now. Um, I don't know if you remember. There's someone that we love that we worked with at Mount Sinai who would just send us these cryptic messages that was like. She was like a manager and she would be like, come up to my office. And, you know, the stress of receiving that message is like, you know, your cortisol levels are flying high. So just being a little bit more mindful in how you're communicating, thinking about what that person is going to feel like on the other end, um, encouraging flexibility, which we spoke about, or hybrid schedules, ending meetings early, um, or even just encouraging your staff to take PTO time. These are things that they already have access to that are free and you don't need to spend any more money. Things that are free are so often overlooked and yet it feels like truly the definition of the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, like, right, like there's nothing, it doesn't take much to just consider that maybe just because something is on your mind at a given moment, that it doesn't have to be on your employees' minds. But on the other hand, I, I'm also curious how you feel about the idea of the subjectivity that's involved in that, right? Like, like the, the beauty of a program like yours or like a department like yours, right? Is that you have, you can say like, we know we're going to start experimenting with meditation because we're seeing that this, that like, we'd like to have a program that supports that, or we'd like to do something that supports this healthy habit. How does the subjectivity play in to, to your role? Like, how does it play into, to corporate well-being departments and programs across the board? What, like, what do you get to decide for yourself versus what sort of like, okay, this, this is what we know is a programmatic approach to a well-being program on campus for faculty and staff. So, I mean, you know, there's actually a whole field of study of workplace well-being. So that's one place where you can get a little bit more concrete data of like what's worked, what, what hasn't worked. Um, like a, long, a, a few years back, like right before the pandemic, we were interested or we were hearing a lot from folks at the medical center that they were experiencing high levels of burnout. And we were looking at programs. Um, folks were asking us for programs around burnout. And then we heard about something out of Stanford called compassion cultivation training. So this is a program that's been studied, that's been shown to reduce burnout, especially in clinical staff. So, you know, some of it is subjective, but there are certain um, programs or um or techniques that are best practices or are research based, um, like any other like any other field of study. 
So, you know, I, I think as dietitians, we're trained to use a little bit of art and a little bit of science. And I think, you know, as you do this role over the years, you're able to pull the best of both worlds and also begin to understand your, your, the culture of your organization and what people are looking for just by having more conversations with them and gathering data to make it more objective, or at least put yourself down a path where you will hopefully have some success in your programming. Given what you know at this point, I mean, you mentioned you've been doing this for eight years. I would love for you to tell us, like, what are some other examples of gold standard of like the best programs that exist today or like the the companies or organizations that have a great workplace well-being program? How do you know if it's a good program or not? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, like looking at the instructor's backgrounds, like we're not hiring random people from Instagram who are like making nice meals to do our nutrition programming, you know, so we are choosing people who have credentials, like our best meditation instructor, she trained at, uh, at Teachers College, they have a spirituality mind body institute there. So we are choosing like evidence based practitioners who do have credentials to do this work. We're not just choosing hokey people who have nice videos and, and pictures on Instagram. We are looking at their credentials, their, um, their background, their work experience, their education and training to make sure that we're offering something um, that is, is of high quality, which is what our employees expect from us. And they, they should, they should expect that from us. Yes, they should. I like it. You're listening to this podcast right now and you work at a company and they're like, we have this corporate wellness program. Isn't it great? And you're like, nope. That's a disaster. Like, what would that look like? Well, I don't know if this answers your question directly, but one of the things that comes up all the time that, you know, there's such, there's like such mixed reviews about is all these different apps out there. And Jackie, if I invite you into my outlook right now, you will see that I am getting at least 10 emails a day from different health and wellness platforms um, to try out their product or or like, let us do our sales pitch for you. And I'm sure there's a lot of value to all of them. But I think there's like this myth, speaking of myths of like, there's an app for that. Sometimes there needs to be like a bigger conversation. And, and, you know, there are a lot of great platforms out there. But it's not a transactional solution for everything. You know, I had someone reach out to me um, the other day about like, a 3D movie with like 3D sound as a way to improve well-being. And like my employees are also telling me I don't have more than 15 minutes to commit to something. So like your hour and a half movie isn't going to work for people in New York or like probably people anywhere, you know, it's like, it has to fit. Um, There isn't an app for everything. And sometimes hiring human beings is a much better solution, um, whether it's like a contractor to help you figure something out or do some research within your organization um, sometimes your resources are just better spent somewhere else and not on an app um, or spending a little bit more time doing your research. Um, there's just, if you go to like any um, workplace wellbeing expo, or even I went to the American Public Health Association conference a few months back and like the whole expo hall is like tech solutions. And I was like, is there anything else? Like, I know those solutions are out there, but um, I think that's a big myth and something that's like not a cure-all is tech the app like like all these apps yeah i know such a great and we have a lot of great ones yeah um but yeah it's not the solution to everything which sometimes is the conversation that we're having that people are asking for tech for everything 
Wow. That's interesting. And also something I never would have thought of, but makes all of the sense. Like, of course, of like, I mean, it makes complete sense that people would assume there's an app for that or that an app is the best solution. And, and what it sounds like to me is that an app is helpful as an adjuvant solution. Almost. It's not the be all end all. And sometimes like we forget that apps were designed to mimic things that might've come from a human in the first place, like originally. (laughs) So the idea of, of, saying, you know, we're going to spend all of this time and investment in getting everyone onboarded onto a a software or a platform or a program. And then you're like, this isn't doing it because no one really wants to be sitting in front of their screen again for like another hour at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Well, okay. All right. Okay. This is leading me down another path, D. (laughs) This is leading me down another path of questioning. Okay. Let's do it. So like in our, I think that's like a great point to make about what, about something that's currently, like it's sort of on the topic of what's currently missing from, from our, from both our approach to preventative care and uh, and nutrition education, honestly, like uh, as sort of like an an offshoot of that is like the way that we treat people right now. And I think there's plenty of things we could go into an entirely different discussion about our current healthcare system, our current healthcare model. But like, do you like what what is the what do you think is the role of like preventative health right now? Or, or like, let me say it differently. Like, what's the difference between sick care as our current model exists is like to treat sick people versus what, like, what are, what are some ways that you think there's promise in the field for helping to, to really solidify a preventative healthcare model that actually helps to reduce not just disease, but like enhance actual well-being. If that, I mean, that's a huge question, but like, yeah. So yeah, I think I feel like there are three parts to it. So like, you know, we often hear that healthcare is sick care, like you don't go to the doctor unless there's something wrong. And then you have preventive care, right? So preventive preventive care is like you're not sick, but you go to the doctor and then they find something and then they treat you. So then I think then you have well-being or wellness, whatever you want to call it that comes into this conversation which goes beyond the absence of disease, but it's more so taking our health and well-being into our own hands and doing what we can to improve our health and how we feel and help us to thrive, be happier, feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, in all these ways. And I think that's like the icing on the cake, but also should be, should be the focus that should be at the heart of it and not, I mean, healthcare is obviously important and preventive care. You should go for your annual visits for, you know, everything that's appropriate for your age range and and history. Um, But making sure that you're taking your health um, into your own hands and making those decisions like eating better, moving more, finding time to relax during the day. Um, these are things that we need to be doing so that when you go for that preventive healthcare checkup, you have a lower chance of having high blood pressure, high cholesterol, having these chronic conditions that, you know, that we've been hearing about for uh, the life of our practice. My biggest pet peeve right now is the idea that in some ways that preventative care and that wellness have to be two different things. Like I think wellness almost became an industry born out of the idea that so many of us feel a little bit failed by like our current healthcare system in, in different ways. Like, um, like to give an example is like, 
I think about certain types of physicians or certain care that's not covered by insurance. Like even, yeah, like, even for us, like we're not covered by insurance mo- for most scenarios, just for, just for understanding actually how to eat. And yet where we're getting information from is media of all types, right? Like, or our family history or our past medical history or lots of different ways that like information comes at us for different life stages and coming from different biases of like whoever is giving the actual advice or giving that input. So it makes me think like, uh, you know, the, the idea that those two things have to be completely separate is, is like maybe its own entire conversation. Like, do they need to be separate or are they technically all a part of the same thing? But, but it's interesting that like the more that like, especially for both of us who have a background in clinical, like, it's interesting to think that like seeing people when they're sick, like we, like there are certain things that you might do as a clinician, as a clinical dietitian, even that are like, so that, that we know work, like that we know would work. And then I think back to, to like, to being, to working in a hospital. And I just think about like some of the dietary supplements that we would give as very regular part of healing, like a shake, like, um, like a boost or, um, an ensure, like some of these like things that you would. And I just remember like having patients in the past that would, where a family member might be like, I'm not giving them that. That's disgust. Like that has terrible ingredients. And I'm thinking to myself, like nothing is different about these ingredients versus the marketing of some of the ingredients you might get outside of the walls of this hospital, but I understand why you might think that, right? Like, so yeah, there's this that- is the liquid version. This is this is the exactly. liquid version of all the other right. stuff that you're eating. Right. Yeah, right. And so, like, so I think like what becomes so challenging for so many people is what's marketing versus what is real, right? Like, so so the question is, I think more along the lines of how do we bring wellness more into that? Like, no, no, this is real, but not all this other stuff that you're doing, like. <laughs> These are real as far as preventative health practices go, not whether or not it's it's organic tapioca syrup as an ingredient in a wellness shake versus or uh, versus corn syrup, right? Like like there are some real things that you can actually do to to take care of yourself versus like these things that you've been led to believe are harmful, bad for you, however someone might phrase it, right? Versus like the actual ways that that we can practice real self-care in a way that may help us ultimately reduce the risk of chronic disease. Yeah. And, you know, outside of nutrition, there's so many other like clinical, like clinical practices, but also just things that are covered in the healthcare system that, you know, we should be encouraging, like should, you know, if you have um, access to acupuncture or, or PT or as an employer, you should be covering those things or you should be covering, if you can, like out of network benefits for, for mental health. So people have access to high quality care and then they're not going to, you know, social media and whoever's marketing the best um, for them to go get their information or products or or whatever. It's so hard with like all that noise out there um, to get people to find access to good quality information. That's why I'm so happy you're doing what you're doing. And I listen to your podcast. How do you know who the right person is? I find myself like giving a different answer to this when people have asked me that depending on the scenario, but in general, like what are some of the things that you might be looking for to know that 
yes, this is trustworthy or yes, this is high quality. Because I'll tell you, like, especially with the pandemic, I feel like a lot of things shifted around about what is expertise in what domain, you know? And I think, like, I hope that there's a lot more awareness now that not all experts are experts at everything, <laughs> right? It's very like, easy to call you yourself an expert, right? You can just, right. you know, put it on your LinkedIn page or your yes. social media page and you know, what you told me many years ago, Jacqueline, was oh everybody eats. <laughs> everybody eats, so everybody has an opinion. So, I mean, in the case of nutrition, you obviously want to look for a registered dietitian, but look at, you know, look at, look for the right credentials. You can Google, mm -hmm. like, what is the highest credential for a PT or for an acupuncturist and, and try to understand that. And if you're really unsure, look for the wellness person at your organization and see if they can help you navigate through some of that because it is so hard with like all this noise. I mean, how do you know? You have to look to see if they have any real credentials or training. And if, if their credentials are being part of an organization of less than a thousand people or less than 10,000 people, I, I don't really know if that's the best fit for you. So mm -hmm. do that's your research, reach out to all of your resources that you have through your job or your partner's job or your family's job and, and try to make the best decision for you. Interesting. Such a good point. All right. So I got to get your take quickly before, before we leave each other, I've got to get your take on, um, on the most annoying wellness thing that you've seen lately. I, I will give you a few examples as, as a listener, you will, you will know about these, but like we've had before juice cleanses is a great example, but also one of my favorite ones that I like to reference is, um, is last year, the example of Bala bangles, which I thought was hilarious and an amazing example of like one of these, the most annoying things that's currently out there. If, if you had to pick one, and you could pick three. You can pick as many as you like, but it'll give us at least one most annoying wellness thing of 2023 so far. <laughs> that is rough. So I guess mine isn't so specific, but it's just that like general, like unrealistic, unattainable, like aspirational images of well-being or wellness that you're seeing on social media that makes you feel like I can't be well if I don't have time to take a two-hour bubble bath with move on the weekends like there's so many simple things they're just not that sexy on social media for you to feel a little bit better a little bit happier have a little bit more joy in your life you can you know go for a walk enjoy a cup of tea listen to a podcast preferably the business of wellness it spend some time you. packing your own lunch you talk to yes. your friend like i'm doing right now this is i mean this yes. conversation is going to energize me through the weekend so there's so much you can do don't look to social media to see how you're well. Look inside yourself and, and find the right answers. Yes. Yes. I love it. All right. I'm, I promise I'm going to let you go. I promise. I really am. I really am. But I can't leave without asking you this, this last one that you just made me think of, which is that like, it, if there's so much money out there right now, and there's also not a lot of money out there right now, <laughs> but in, but in the, in, in the field of nutrition and in the field of biotech in general, and some of what we were talking about before about tech-based solutions, there's a lot of in investment being poured into tech, um, at least previously. And granted, that might change now that we're here in 2023 and we have looming questions about recession and all of that. Okay, but that aside, what, do you, what would you want an investor listening to this podcast to know about the 
about investment in um, in workplace well-being programs and or nutrition education. What would be your like, this is my swan, this is the swan song I want to leave everyone with. I just want you to know that this is why it's so powerful for people to actually invest in real education and, and in the physical and psychological health of everyday people. Jackie, I'm so happy you asked this because I was reading an article the other day about all of these healthcare platforms that a specific healthcare company has invested in. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it would just blow your mind what the kind of money these companies are throwing at at these apps and, and tech platforms. Call them what you want. Yeah. I, and I guess investors, if you're listening, yeah. if you are listening, what you should be looking for is that the app that you're throwing your money at should have a chief clinical blank. Yeah. So they should have a clinical position on the board at yeah. the highest level that's supporting the decisions that is that are happening throughout the, you know, throughout the company and that are driving the business decisions of these tech platforms. I could go on and on about this forever, but I'm gonna say this one thing that, you know, somebody, you know, mm-hmm. we've all seen this happen like an app that somebody created a nutrition app based on this very restrictive diet that they were on. And now, you know, they're getting millions of dollars of funding to promote this very restrictive diet that is not good for people in any way, shape or form is way too restrictive if you want to be a social person in any which way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're putting your money where there's science behind, behind the product and look for your chief clinical blank. Such good advice. Daniela, thank you for being here. Where can people find you? Tell us, tell us, leave us with your, leave us with ways that people can stay on top of what you're working on, what you're doing and how anyone can reach out to you to learn more. Perfect. You could find me on LinkedIn. My name is Daniela Elizari or on Instagram, Daniela.Elizari. And let me know what your organization is doing for well-being, or tell me what you're interested in on the topic. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.